0: You may be seated. And good morning, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. It's the last children, it's the last book of the Bible. You can just flip backwards. Let me say this, if you um, you don't regularly bring your Bible to worship over the rest of our study of the book of Revelation, you're probably going to want to, um, because... We're going to cover larger sections, and we're just not able to print um, all the text for you and your worship guide. If you're new to Christianity and are unfamiliar with the Bible and maybe don't have a Bible, we would love to get one for you. Just let one of us know, um, and we will get one to you free of charge. If you're watching at home on the live stream still um, and don't have one, then we uh, just message us, and we'll get you one. Revelation chapter 6, we're going to look at and study 6 and 7 in the first verse of chapter 8 this morning. Um, But for time's sake, I'm just going to read the first 11 verses to get us started. This is God's Word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, "'Come!' And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, "'Come!' And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth." So that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked. And behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And he heard, and I heard, what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is God's word. Would you join with me and we, as we ask his blessing on his word preached? Lord, we, we sung into this sermon text these words, Be thou my vision. And that is what we are asking for your spirit to do through your word. Give us a vision of your glory that would cause us to tremble and worship and find you to be the delight that makes our hearts covet no more. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking last week, um, as we got done with worship, you know, there are just, there are these Sundays when God is always, every Sunday God is present, God is working. There's just some Sundays when you get a more vibrant sense of that. And I thought last week, I was like, wow, that was amazing. That vision, the last two Sundays of chapter four and five of God sitting on his throne, the lamb slain for our sins as the victor over all of creation is just, wow, And then you go out of this room and life doesn't look like that anymore. And it makes you wonder which one is real. Christ, the slain lamb, sitting on his throne, reigning over all things. Or the daily brokenness that I feel and the struggles that I experience. And that the answer at this moment of history that John has been leading us into and will narrate for us for the rest of the book is that at this point in history... Both are true simultaneously. And you see, this is one of the things that I think authenticates the Bible as God's word is that it is always starkly honest about the evil that we see in the world. It's not like a Hallmark movie that just warms over the darkness and tries to pretend it's not there. The Bible is starkly honest about the brokenness of our own selves and the world in which we live honest about the darkness and so we venture from the grand vision the the rooting vision of revelation 4 and 5 into revelation 6 and 4 and 5 god is on the throne and he's reigning in 6 and 7 over the present evil that we see day in and day out in the news and in our own lives and maybe it'll be helpful at this point to give us an orientation to what John is going to do for the rest of the book. If you have sat through a sermon series in the book of Revelation, it probably stopped with the first three chapters. It might have ventured into four and five, but in chapter six, it just starts to get weird and confusing. And so let me, let me give us a sense maybe of what John is doing. He is not giving us a strict chronology of events He's not saying this happens and then that's going to happen and that's going to happen. He's giving us instead a, a vision of God and his purposes presently and in the age to come of what the Lord is up to. In other words, he's, he's writing less of a timeline for us and more of painting a picture His aim is to stir our imagination just as in giving these visions to John, the Spirit had stirred John's imagination to see the world through the lens of God who sits on the throne reigning over all things. And So let me give us, if you're a note taker, let me give us three keys that I think will maybe unlock a clearer understanding of the rest of the book. For us, these are three interpretive principles that you can kind of take maybe to these more confusing parts. First, the main tool that John is going to use to help us get a vision that we can see life through is repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. But this is just an ancient way, an ancient, particularly Hebrew way of providing emphasis. They would repeat things for effect. It's one of the main marks of Hebrew poetry. So John is going to repeat the scenes that we see today throughout the rest of the book. Four different scenes of seven, for instance, in the next ten chapters, followed by a final scene starting with uh, chapter 17, that reiterates and brings to a final, ultimate conclusion the same patterns that he has been repeating all along. And the pattern that is repeated is that salvation comes through judgment, or judgment leads to salvation. So John is going to repeat those themes four different times with four different series of sevens, and then one final, ultimate scene that repeats it again, starting in chapter 17. Second key. First key, repetition. Second key is that in each of these series of sevens is interrupted by an interlude. In a breaking in to the scenes of judgment. For instance, starting in chapter 7, the judgment scene just stops and gives us another vision into God saving his people. That happens again in chapter 11, and it happens again in chapter 14. The judgment is broken by a new scene that gives us a vision into what else God is doing in the world. He's saving his people. And then a final key, so repetition an interlude to the judgment scenes and then a final key. They, all these patterns end with this. God present with his people and all of his enemies defeated. And that is repeated in each of the next four series of seven. Reaching its final conclusion in 17 through 22. God present with his people and all of his and our enemies defeated in a new heavens and a new earth. Or in other words, each of these visions is building one on another to give us the major storyline of the Bible again. God's judgment leads to salvation and God's reign being established over all the earth. That's the final scene that we will see over and over and over again. Now, let's turn to chapter 6 and look at these seven seals. Seven seals here, followed by a vision of seven trumpets, followed by another vision, followed by seven... Bowls of Wrath. So let's look at these seven seals. You'll remember that the previous vision in chapter 4 is God seated on the throne. The Father seated on the throne with all of creation around him under the throne. The chaos and evil of the world had been made clear as glass calmed before his presence. And in the right hand is a scroll of the Father and on it is seven seals. And it symbolized God's plan for history, His purposes in the world. And then the angel asked the important question, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Rolling out God's redemptive purposes in this world. And a little lamb is there and the lamb, a baby lamb, slain and yet standing because death had no hold of it. Is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. The question, who is worthy to open the scrolls, is the Lamb who was slain, 6 1. Then the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And these are really broken down, these seven seals are really broken down into a series of four and three. Four seals of judgment on the world and then three seals of salvation for God's people because God is glorified as much in judgment as He is in salvation. Both judgment and salvation reveal the righteousness of God. And God, therefore, is glorified in judgment. And oftentimes the way judgment comes in the world and even in our own lives is to allow the evil in the world or the evil in our own hearts just to run its course, to have its own way. And so Jesus opens the first four seals, and four riders come out on four different horses. The first seal is he pulls it back, a horse and a rider are released into the world. A white horse, then a red horse, and a black horse, and a pale-looking horse. And around the throne, we saw in chapters 4 and 5, are four fierce-looking creatures called cherubim. They were the ones who guarded God's throne. They were his warriors. And when the lamb breaks a seal, one of the cherubim says, with a voice like thunder. You hear how terrifying that is? With a voice like thunder, he says, come. Come. And he says that, and a white horse comes. And the white horse symbolizes invading armies that conquer other nations. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. An invading army is marching in. happens throughout all of world history. One empire falls, replaced by another, by another, by another. And then the second living creature thunders. Come. And a bright red horse comes out. His bright red, it's the color of blood, and he brings internal conflict, civil war. Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And then the third living creature thunders. Come. And a black horse comes out and he brings with him food shortages that lead the war-torn nations to despair because the price of food inflates to unbearable levels. This rider had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat, it's like a handful of wheat for a denarius, it's a day's wages. And three quarts of barley for a denarius and don't harm the oil and the wine. And you see what's happening is that as these nations are torn apart, as the peoples of the world are torn apart, as the riders are unleashed, it's not generosity that takes over the world, it's greed. And then the fourth living creature thunders come. And a pale horse, think of the color of a corpse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. 25% of the world's population dies in a moment. My friends, this is the normal experience of most people throughout the history of the world. It's the normal experience of most people throughout the world currently. You don't have to go far to see this. Last year alone, Sudan and Ethiopia erupted into a conflict that led to 50,000 people dead in less than six months. Even this week, uprisings in the country of Colombia threatened the stability of the country from within. You don't have to go far to find that story being played out from nation after nation after nation around the world. The 20th century, in and of itself, experienced the most bloodshed in the history of mankind. It is estimated that 3.1 million children die every year from starvation. That's half the population of our state, every year. And it's not because there's not enough food, it's because there's not enough generosity. Swarms of locusts regularly descend on the Middle Eastern countries, devouring crops and leaving people without food for the year. And if that doesn't take it out, pestilence will. And here's what John is, or is seeing, what God is saying through John God is reigning over all of it. He is the one who declares, I form light, I create darkness, I make well being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. These things, wars and rumors of wars and bloodshed and famine and evil and terror, are all under the hand of God the righteous one. And for what man intends for evil, God intends for good, but he still reigns over it all. And his good may be allowing his judgment to plague the world at times. Amos 3. God says is a trumpet blown in a city and the people not afraid does a disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it and you see the way what John is seeing is that these things are to function like smoke detectors in the world a smoke detector alerts us there's just a little whiff of smoke that hits it and it says to us watch out There is something dangerous that is on the way. The one smoldering judgment of God will break out later. And these events are to alert you. You are going to have to deal with the one who sits on his throne. And we've experienced a time of peace in this country that is historically very unusual. We've not had an army invade our country in over 200 years. No civil war has devastated our country in over 160 years. You will not find a person alive who has experienced widespread famine in our country. It's almost unheard of. And it, I'm afraid, has lulled us into a false sense of security and pride that has made Jesus seem tepid and pale and his gospel more therapeutic than redemptive. But I want you to see that even these temporary judgments are still being restrained by God. Did you catch this? Each rider has to be given permission to go. And then the rider on the black horse and the pale horse are restrained. And the black horse, as he brings famine, but don't harm the oil and the wine. And then, Leave some good for them to enjoy. Even death is only able to touch a fourth of the earth. It doesn't come across everything and devastate everyone. God is also displaying his goodness in restraining his judgment for a period of time. And you see what happens then in verse 9 when the fifth seal is opened. John's focus shifts. From the four horsemen who are ravaging the earth in judgment. And his gaze now shifts downward under the altar that is before the throne of God above. The people who are being judged in the earth have proven themselves worthy of his judgment. For at the heart of sin is not an indifference to God. It is a hatred of him and his rule. What every little child says, my way never leaves our lips. My way. Let me do it. Mine. it's not that, it's not that humankind, it's not what's in our own hearts. It's just it's, I don't have enough evidence. I hate him. I'm rebelling against him. I do not want him, and this is displayed in the fifth seal, because hid under the altar are the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Do You realize more martyrs, more people are martyred for the name of Christ today than in history previous. Martyrdom is increasing. And do you see the beauty of this scene? The lamb slain is protecting those who had been slain for the lamb. Jesus promised his people, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me. They will persecute you too. If they kept my word. They'll keep yours also. And so they had been slain. For the word of God. And the witness that they had borne. And so they cry out. In verse 10. Oh sovereign Lord. Holy and true. How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That cry is going up presently in heaven. And so you see the greater conflict in the world around us. It's not over politics. It's not over masks. It's not over the mainstream media. It's not over the academy. The church has no friends on the earth But we do have a friend who reigns and will vindicate his people. But until then, this is his reply. Verse 11. They were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves had been killed. You see Jesus' answer to the question they're asking, how long till you vindicate? And Jesus' answer is, there are more that need to be killed for my name's sake. We don't need less people to suffer for Christ. We need more. We need more martyrs for Jesus, not less. Let me tell you, one of the reasons that I chose Revelation is that because we need a better story to live by that will sustain us in a world that is asking us and pressuring God's people to make compromises. It is going to be costlier to follow Jesus in the age to come. And I knew, particularly college students, if you're in your 20s, if you're just graduating, I knew this. I knew that, that the story, we needed a better story than just hand wringing over politics. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, ain't gonna sustain you when the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Everything's falling apart. Jesus said this would happen. Likewise, the therapeutic story that God wants your best life now and he's here to make everything better for you won't lead to filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Those stories don't make people who are willing to suffer for Jesus and see the glory in that. Because Christians won't be on mission for Jesus with those two stories. We need more people to take up Jesus' cross and carry his mission forward. So we need a better story that will sustain us while some of us die for Jesus. And here's what John's saying. It's just, throughout the book, there's this major theme. It's an upside-down kingdom, and those who die win. And then the sixth seal it seems a little while longer is coming to an end. Again, this is not chronology. These are just visions that John is seeing that's painting a picture for him. Because the story doesn't stop with the fourth seal. And judgment being let out in the world. It doesn't stop with the fifth seal and those who are martyred under the altar. The story continues on and the lamb opens the sixth seal. And in this moment the smoldering ember of God's judgment that was met with the killing of God's people, not the bending of their knee in repentance and faith to the Lamb. They should have fallen at the feet of the Lamb and had His blood cover their rebellion. But it doesn't. So now what was once smoldering, a smoldering ember of God's judgment, flames up in his wrath and and engulfs everyone so that no one can stand before Jesus. Verse 12, chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then... The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Not you. Not me, not Elon Musk with all of his wealth and genius, not the most humanitarian person with all of their good works, not the most oppressed, the slave, not the most powerful, the kings of the earth. There is no place to hide from the lamb who was slain, who bore the wrath of God in his body for the sins of his people, is worthy to bring the wrath of God against the enemies of God. They should have found refuge. God himself had provided a refuge. They had gone to the rocks and the hills to be hid from the wrath of the Lamb. If they would have hid themselves in the Lamb, then God's wrath would have been satisfied on the Lamb. And instead, it's being brought by the Lamb. I told you in our introduction there's always an interlude in all of these four series of seven. Perhaps... Uh, Keaton and I were talking this week. Perhaps it's it's just a narrative tool to give us a break because we need a breath at this point, don't we? You can just feel the air sucked out of the room. This is heavy, deep stuff. Because before the seventh seal is opened, John sees something else. The four angels, verse verse one of chapter seven, the cherubim, are standing at the four corners of the earth. Those ones who had unleashed the four riders are now standing, holding back the four winds. God is holding back his judgment on evil. It won't be finalized until he has one more work that needs to be done. His people have to be gathered together and secured Verse 2. Then I saw another angel descending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. I'd said last week that a seal in the ancient Near East was the king's way of authenticating and protecting that which belonged to him. He would place his ring and wax, and it was his way of saying, this is mine. It carries my authority, my protection, my love, my power, my provision. This is mine. But he's saying, these are mine. I'm going to put my seal on my people. Hold it back until I've gathered them all together. And what John sees is a wartime census. God's people are counted 12,000 from every tribe, 144,000. That's just John's way. It's way of revelation saying it's really big. And then he repeats it, repetition, repetition. And I looked in verse 9, and I saw a great multitude that no one could number. From every n- nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches. That's a symbol of peace in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne. they worshipped saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever. And then in verse 13, one, one of the elders looks at me and he says, who are these clothed in white robes from where they come? John's like, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That great tribulation is all the, the chaos and evil that was described in our present world previously, these are the ones that I've taken out. They're living in my kingdom. Now, when you go out into the world and you're like, there's still a lot of brokenness, a lot of evil in my own heart. And if you're confident in your kingdom of priests, you've been taken out of the tribulation, seated with Christ in heaven, set your mind there. That's what we read in our assurance part in Colossians 1. Christ is seated there, you with him. So think about these things. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. Presently. That's where you are. Safe under his altar. Covered in the blood of the lamb that's washed you and he's clothed you with white robes. Therefore, they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That vision that God gives us is striking, isn't it? It's a much better way to view the world. And it's radically different than one of the other Christian artists of our day, Thomas Kincaid. Kincaid made his fortune crafting paintings of serene images of ideal places. They would then drop Bible verses onto his paintings. This is what he envisioned that the Bible gave to us, a pristine world of good people and good places where everything was clean and peaceful and sanitary. That's not the vision that John gives us in his masterpiece, where darkness and evil are looked straight into the eye, acknowledged as darkness and evil, until the cry is heard, who will redeem? And the only one worthy is the Lamb slain for sins, reigning and returning. Kincaid died in his sleep from a toxic interaction of alcohol abuse and anxiety meds. He was divorced, he was living with his girlfriend after having gone bankrupt while being sued for defrauding the galleries that were selling his art. John, on the other hand, is writing from the island of Patmos, where he is exiled for following Jesus after watching every other apostle fall to the sword from Jerusalem or Rome for the name of Jesus. One story so empty that it led to despair. One story led to hope and joy in the midst of a world of evil. And so here's the question. Which vision will sustain you? The bucolic one Or the bloody one. And the seventh seal is opened in what is one of the most dramatic pauses in all of literature. One of the the greatest codas that any symphony writer has built in. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. All the chaotic cacophony of the previous chapters had been silenced. For the one who won, stands victorious and will inevitably win, has conquered and has all power and authority. And can protect his people and lead them into victory. And all of creation will stand silent before him. Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, it is to be fed by the Lamb slain for our sins, who has clothed us in white robes and told us just a little while longer. And so we pray, take these ordinary elements and use them to sustain us that we might stand faithful to you, witnessing to the beauty of your gospel to a world that is in desperate need of goodness. If you will, by your grace, strengthen us then we will, by your grace, stand until until what is left of the suffering of your people is filled up. And your gospel goes out. And then you come. And so we pray that you would use these ordinary elements to that end. In your name. Amen. Amen.